Council of Constance. And uh, the first thing to note about uh, Council of Constance, uh, we have to sort of step back and talk about how we got to 1414, where there's a council trying to put the church back together in terms of its authority. Uh, the head of the church has been split in three. How does that happen? And um, by the way, I gave a lecture on this last spring. <laughs> you can access it from my, from my, uh, my YouTube channel uh, and from my podcast channel on Anchor. But um, uh, the Great Schism, uh, in brief, uh, began in 1378. Um, the papacy had taken a 70-year you know, hiatus uh, from Rome, going and uh, decamping to Avignon. And it came back in 1377. And... Um, and what happened was uh, a new pope was elected shortly after the pope who brought the papacy back, uh, whose name was Urban VI. And Urban VI was a reformer. Uh, he was someone that people thought would clean up the, the, uh, the papacy, clean up some of the corruption involved in all this. Uh, however, he was a man with a violent temperament. And um, in fact, uh, he basically made it clear his um, intention to reduce the power of the cardinals and the curia literally to cut their revenues to do stuff like this and um, faced with this a group of cardinals about, thir about um, 13 or so of the ones who had elected him uh, met uh, within a month or so of his election a couple of months or so of his election and declared that his election had been invalid um, due to uh, popular pressure there were mobs outside um, the uh, um, mobs in Rome they claimed they pressured them into voting for this guy and so on December 20th, 1378, uh, I got that wrong, by the way, it's actually Urban VI as, as a reformer, my apologies. Um, these cardinals elect uh, a man named Robert of Geneva uh, as Pope Clement VII, who goes and takes up his residence in Avignon. And so you have all of a sudden two popes, two um, obediences as, as they'll call them, one in Avignon, one in Rome, and, um, Long story short, over a period of 30 years, it'll divide the Christian world, in particular along nationalist lines. Um, England, Germany, their allies tend to support Rome. Uh, France and Spain tend to support Avignon. So you have national differences will play a big role in all of this, as well as in the Council of Constance, being caused by this split. The other thing that Constance is no uh, notable for is that it's, it, um, it coincides with the, um, the rise of conciliarism. This is the idea that the church should be governed not by popes, but by ecumenical councils. Where does this come from? Well, it has its origins actually in medieval canon law. Medieval canon, uh, canon lawyers are actually the people who built in the first place the structure of the medieval church around the papacy. They're the ones who built up this ideal of an all-powerful Bishop of Rome who governs the church universal. And, uh, but these canon lawyers talked about everything and they hotly debated what would happen if, there, uh, if a wicked or a heretical Pope came to the throne of St. Peter. And um, they took lots of positions. They never did come to a, a total consensus. But they, many did argue that a pope who taught heresy could be deposed by a council. And that in an emergency, uh, a council could be, could be superior to a pope. All this was fairly academic to the early 14th century when, once the papacy went to Avignon, uh, you began to have um, 
um, there was a council uh, called in uh, 1311, Council of Vienne, which uh, called for um, um, trying to decentralize the papacy to reduce its administrative powers and called for, uh, in the work of a man named William Durante, um, called for the calling of general councils every 10 years, as well as subjecting all legislation for the universal church to the approval of such councils. And again, this is a way of trying to rein in the power of the Pope, which again, there's people beginning to complain about its centralization of power at this point. By the 1330s, you have people who are beginning to, um, to, um, uh, to espouse really radical ideas. Uh, people like Marsilius of Padua, Uh, was a French theologian, uh, actually Italian, but um, theologian at Paris, as well as William of Ockham in the 1330s, who basically deny that the Pope has, you know, universal jurisdiction. They deny the divine institution of his right to govern the church. Um, and in fact, Marcellus of Padua basically says the church is the entire body of uh, Christendom. But that's the ultimate governing power there. Uh, he's the most radical thinker to appear. Uh, and Occam's a little bit less radical. But you have, and this is a long story I can't get into, but there's bad debates between the Pope at the time, John the 22nd, and these, these uh, theologians. However, these ideas are too radical for most people. They don't go anywhere. But by the time you get to the schism, after 1378, all of a sudden this idea comes into its own as a practical matter. Uh, because now, of course, you have a serious problem. Who's the Pope? Who's the legitimate Pope? So you have theologians beginning to argue that in an emergency, um, this is the ideal, you sometimes hear this phrase, the supreme law of the church is, um, is the salvation of souls. And so in an emergency, a council can take over, basically. Uh, didn't need, for example, one of the requirements medieval canon lawyers normally said about councils was, well, Pope has to convoke it. You have began people being to say, well, look, maybe we don't need that in the case of an emergency like this. Uh, in time, you're going to have several very prominent theologians and cardinals uh, begin to take up this idea. In particular, uh, theologians from the University of Paris, they'll be play a major role at Constance. People like Pierre Dailly, who is the chancellor of the University of Paris, becomes a cardinal. His successor, Jean Gerson, a very famous spiritual writer and theologian, also chancellor of the University of Paris, also uh, becomes a cardinal, also is at the Council of Constance. He's probably the most important figure. Uh, but also non-Frenchman, um, a, a German named Dietrich Amin, uh, and an Italian cardinal, Francisco, uh, Francesco Zabarella, who also be very important at the council. Um, They'll differ in details, but they'll all basically say that there are circumstances um, like the one they're in that a general council could wield the church's power over people claiming to be pope. Uh, and in particular, these are, I should mention, Dailly, Gerson. This is, this is the time of the Renaissance by this point, and these people are very well versed in history. Um, they're, aware, they're aware, for example, that popes weren't always elected in the same way as they were in the Middle Ages. They were aware that early councils like the Council of Nicaea weren't convoked by popes. So they understand that stuff has become, has changed over time. So they're thinking in terms of going back in history to look for solutions to the problem they found themselves in. And so what happens is uh, by 1409, pretty much all the parties, all the cardinals, especially at Avignon, 
and Rome have gotten tired of all this. They tried to have the two sides meet together and abdicate. That's been the big the big thing most people want is both sides to advocate elect a new uh, advocate elect a new pope and so um the curia at rome reaches out to the curia at avignon and they decide um they begin to press bishops princes the two popes themselves to attend a council at pisa in 1409 and in fact um their propaganda is so persuasive they managed to get much of uh, christendom behind them uh, in 1409, some uh, 200 bishops, almost 300 abbots, um, the generals of most of the mendicant orders, some 700 theologians and canonists, delegates from most of the Western kingdoms and states, and as well as uh, many universities show up in Pisa to try to end the schism. What they wound up doing was turning the whole thing into a legal process because um, both, neither Gregory XII, who was the Roman Pope at the time, uh, or Benedict, Benedict XIII, a guy named Pedro de Luno, Spanish. Uh, they both refused to come to Pisa. Neither one of them wanted to abdicate. Um, they felt like um, they wouldn't be, uh, they, they were afraid one of them, would, they would abdicate and the other one wouldn't, basically. And so they tried to hold their own councils. Uh, and in fact, after a lengthy examination of the evidence, the cardinals um, at Pisa, um, declared um, both popes formally deposed as schismatics and heretics. And then a few weeks later, uh, they uh, elected a man named Peter of Candia as Alexander V. He presided over the um, um, remaining sessions and uh, the assembly dissolved in 1409. However, of course, it was not convoked by papal authority. Uh, and uh, even though, by the way, at the time, it had a lot of support, um, much of canon law, opinion, theological opinion, supported all this. However, uh, neither Pope or their supporters were, uh, were willing to admit the justice of the sentence. And so all that happened was you get three Popes still arguing with each other instead of two. So this is where this conciliarist idea comes into play. And it hasn't as of yet worked. So that's something to keep in mind. And so by the time you get to the Council of Constance, you're gonna have three obediences I'll show you in a moment because it's gonna keep names of these players. Now what happens after Pisa, Alexander V will die, the Pisan Pope, and um, he'll be replaced by a man named uh, Baldessare Coso, John XXIII, and at the same time, a man named Sigismund will become king of the Romans. And I'll have to go through this in a moment to explain this. this kind of a lot of backstory. He is essentially the, um, the ruler of the Holy Roman Empire. He's not crowned emperor in 1414 or even during the council, but he'll become Emperor Sigismund. Um, he, um, among other things, he has a lot of things on his plate as an emperor, as we'll see. Um, he wants to get Christendom reunited for a lot of reasons. And so he uh, asks John XXIII, to the Pisan Pope to call for another council, which the Council of Pisa had promised to do anyway, it was to have another council. And um, effectively he pressures uh, John XXIII. John XXIII, as we're gonna see, is not real keen on all this for a variety of reasons. This, by the way, is Baldessare Cosa. That should be two S's, I'm getting all this stuff messed up with these, these slides. Uh, Anti-Pope, as you're gonna see, uh, he's not recognized as a real Pope today, but I'll come to that. He will convince him to convene a council at the imperial city of Constance, which we'll get to in 1414. 
And just to clarify here, when we go into this, it's going to be hard for you to keep track of all these names. Um, the um, Pisan Pope, John the Twenty-Third, Pisan Obedience, <clears throat> Benedict the Thirteenth, Pedro de Luna, Spanish man. He is the Pope of, in Avignon. Um, most of the Spanish world puts their weight behind him. And then Gregory the Twelfth, um, Angelo. I say it's Correa. I can't. Remember, I can't remember the last name. Um, an Italian. He is the Roman Pope at the time, Gregory XII. So this is the three popes we're talking about. Um, they won't all come to the, the council for reasons that will become apparent, but those are the ones uh, in question when we're talking about um, the obediences here. So let's get uh, to the council itself, 1414 to 1418. First of all, about the place where they meet, and I have to show you this map just to make sure, because, um, there's a lot going on in this council besides just matters re regarding the church. I know that sounds kind of crazy because the, the situation is crazy enough, but this is the Holy Roman Empire, which Sigismund, um, who was actually from Luxembourg, actually is supposed to govern. And uh, it's made up of, uh, it's an elected monarchy is the empire, made up of this crazy quilt of different states, bishoprics, uh, kingdoms, the kingdom of Bohemia, which we'll definitely keep in mind in the eastern part of that territory. If you're listening to this on a podcast, I'm sorry, but it's in the eastern part of, of, of what is sometimes called Germany and Middle Ages. It's not one state, as you can see, but also a bunch of different cities. And they will meet, if you can see right down here in this map, this little place here, Constance. Right on the, uh, right on this lake, little lake here, just, just uh, right on the border with the Swiss Confederation, with the Swiss. Um, they meet there because they want to meet someplace close enough the emperor can get to and someplace that's not too far from the popes down in Pisa and down in Rome down here, and particularly John XXIII because he's the, the pope most people actually recognize at this point. Um, and that's why it's being held there. And just to show you where we're talking about all this little close up, um, you can kind of see this is the lake. This is the Rhine River flowing through the lake. Constance is a, is a it's not on the ocean, but it's a port city. Trade comes through there. Uh, this little this little boundary here is the boundary between it and Switzerland, and um, as you can see here, note in the map if you can't see this is to the west. Um, the biggest city west of this is a modern map, but it fits with Middle Ages. The biggest city west of Constance is Schaffhausen, which we'll have um, um, uh, reason to mention later on. But um, it's right on the uh, uh, right on the lake there, right on the Rhine River, easily accessible. And this is an image of what Constance looked like in the Middle Ages. Uh, you can kind of see this is uh, 1699 date, but it's more or less unchanged uh, from the time the council was held. It's a tiny wall medieval city. Again, a port city, you see the port there. Um, here is the, um, the cathedral. And right here, probably this building, I'll show you a modern picture in a minute, is where they actually held the council meetings. Uh, a tiny little building in the middle of this city. This is a picture of uh, Constance from modern day. Just to give you an idea of how small medieval cities were, this little area right here is the Altstadt, the old town. That's it, a uh, tiny little town of Constance uh, in the Middle Ages. And here, just to show you the picture, because it's they're both still standing, this is the cathedral, which was there in the Middle Ages. To your right, if you're seeing this, um, can't see this, I'm sorry. On the left here, right on the water, this is the council building, as they still call it, in Constance. 
if it looks kind of like a dump, that's because, <laughs> I say a dump, it doesn't look like a nice building. That's because it was a warehouse that they turned into a meeting house for the actual council itself, for Italian merchants, built in the 1390s. So this is where they meet to decide the fate of Christendom. Now, one of the things to note about, um, about um, Constance, which is the, I have this correctly, 16th uh, ecumenical council as recognized by the uh, Church of Rome, it is more than merely a meeting of prelates or bishops. It is literally, quite literally, a Congress of all Europe. There are um, a dozen princes, there are um, 300, over 300 bishops, nearly 30 cardinals, several hundred uh, theologians, canon lawyers, um, including the people I've mentioned before, the Frenchman, Dailly, Gerson, uh, Zarabella, the, the Italian, uh, who play an important role in this, uh, in this council. Sigismund, of course, the emperor. I should mention him. He's really key in this. He's present for especially much of the first part of the council. Um, his, um, his pressure in bringing this about was very important for the council, both for it coming together, but also for its success. And in fact, I should I mean to emphasize, because I won't have time to go any, over any of this, um, a lot of the things they'll talk about in the, in the, uh, a lot of the things they'll do in this council, they'll do a lot of other things besides deal with the, the schism, deal with other sorts of things. They'll be dealing with land disputes. Um, there's all sorts of things going on at the council. In particular, by the way, I want to stress the role of doctors and canonists. They had something of a role at Pisa. They'll have an even greater role at the Council of Constance. Not only because people like Gerson and Dailly were cardinals themselves, were also uh, theologians, um, they'll be play a huge role as advisors. And this is kind of the first council that is, I don't want to say dominated, but it's really influenced by academic theologians, uh, which is something that's, you know, in recent times, uh, if you think of the Second Vatican Council, the Periti, the uh, experts that advise people at the cardinals and bishops at the council, that council, um, this is the first one of those. So they, they, come, they come to this with ideas already in place. And then finally, they have three main aims um, at the council. One is to heal the schism. Two is to combat heresy. Well, to come back to that, it's a big part of what they're going to do. And then three, pass reforms that will um, uh, that will keep basically a schism from happening. And when I say reforms, I'll come back to this at the end of the lecture. Um, but uh, they're specifically talking about reforms of the papacy, mostly, as you'll see. However, of course, you also have reform movements that are present uh, in Europe at this time. And I have to mention this one. I mentioned the King of Bohemia earlier, part of the empire. It's also a place where there has been a reform movement going back to the mid 14th century, which um, has emphasized, uh, as other reform movements have, a return to you know, primitive uh, ways of living among the clergy. There's criticism of the wealth of the clergy, uh, criticism of their um, lack of care uh, for their flock, um, lots of Czech reformers spearhead not only a charge against lax morality among the clergy, but uh, against traffic in false relics, um, excessive veneration of images, stuff like this, um, as well as, um, you know, criticizing, you know, again, expensive ch uh, church ceremonies and stuff like this. However, none of this, by the way, is proto-Protestant. Um, all these reformers, for the most part, before 1400, uh, venerate the Euc uh, Eucharist. They, they advise things like frequent communion. Um, 
but they also insist on the need for preaching and for appealing to scripture. So they're part of a reform uh, wide held among people like I mean, John Garcon sort of like this, a simpler, more biblical um, um, faith rooted in, you know, scripture and things of this nature. However, by 1400, things begin to shift because in 1400, the teaching of teachings of John Wycliffe, who was a um, basically a heretic from uh, England in the later part of the 1370s and 80s, his ideas get into the universities of Prague and some of the reformers begin to take on his ideas. And by the way, he did criticize, I don't have the time to go into John Wycliffe, also did a lecture on Wycliffe, uh, which should help you. Uh, he did deny things like the real presence. He did attack transubstantiation. And you begin to have some of these reformers go toward that direction. So this will lead to a split within this reformist movement between those that are more orthodox and those that are a little more, um, a little more um, off the rails uh, in terms of uh, teaching. So it's edging toward heresy to a certain degree. We'll come back to this very shortly. This is important to note. So when they come to Constance in November of 1414, the cardinals, the prelates have a good idea what they want to do. When um, they come there, the council is convoked, convened uh, by John the 23rd. And in fact, um, one of the first things they'll do, because um, they have to wait for uh, representatives from all the different popes to get there, the other ones besides John the 23rd, um, one of the first things they do, because John Hus is invited to come, um, as all, uh, John Hus, if you don't know, is the by the early 1400s, the leader of the Czech reform movement. He's a preacher um, um, and um, eventually rector of the University of Prague in uh, Bohemia. Um, he uh, becomes a really, uh, um, I want to say radical, he actually doesn't go that far in terms of his beliefs, but uh, he'll be very critical of both church and state, actually, in, uh, in Bohemia. Uh, he'll criticize, for example, uh, King Wenceslaus of Bohemia's um, 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 use of um, indulgences, should sound familiar to you, by the way, um, which are actually being promulgated by uh, John Twenty-Third. So um, there's some of the same things that'll come later on with, uh, with Martin Luther. Uh, in fact, he'll back a sort of popular reform movement in, uh, in Bohemia. Uh, and eventually what he's going to do is he's going to alienate the king and some of his supporters in that country. And um, he actually never did embrace Wycliffe's views, but he became part of this movement was sort of lurching in that direction. More to the point, his criticisms touched on some serious uh, tensions within Bohemia and elsewhere in the medieval world. Um, there were, of course, tensions against the church. There was anti-clericalism. Um, paying of church taxes, the tithe, stuff like that among the peasantry, those sorts of things. But also, even within the clergy itself, this is something I'll come back to, um, the, you know, um, uh, practice of simony among prelates. The, the great wealth of a lot of these higher clergy, um, you have to remember, a lot of the uh, lower clergy, parish priests in medieval Europe are really poor and they resent the wealth uh, and power of the upper clergy. It's distinctions within the church, uh, clergy actually matter. Uh, and so, as I mentioned before, you're going to have this uh, reforming party being opposed by uh, a more conservative party. It's going to turn against Hus in, uh, in Prague. And um, the archbishop there will actually excommunicate um, uh, Hus. Actually, he'll be excommunicated four times because <laughs> uh, he defies every authority that tells him to stop preaching, basically. Uh, eventually, he'll be denounced. Uh, and uh, in fact, the um, 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 his enemies in the Curia um, of John the Twenty Third will actually 
um, declare him to be under excommunication, declare an interdict uh, over Prague or any other place where he resides. He has to leave Prague. Long story short, he's given safe conduct to come to Constance to, uh, to work all this out. However, when he gets there, as soon as he gets there, he starts preaching. He starts going on attacking, uh, attacking the hierarchy. Uh, he refuses to stop. And so three weeks later, um, you have um, um, uh, Hus arrested and incarcerated uh, in the dungeon of a Dominican monastery. Uh, and so all of a sudden, and what, again, the reason I mentioned this is because one of the things that the um, that the uh, the fathers at Constance are very concerned about is their authority. One of the first speeches that Gerson gives when he comes into the council is about basically how anyone questions the authority of the council is a heretic and should be basically burned at the stake. Uh, they're sensitive to the need to to maintain the authority of what they're doing because again they're in a, such a such a, a bizarre situation, right? So Hus challenges that he gets sort of slapped down, as you'll see. In any case, they begin to wait for the representatives of the Roman Pope Benedict, Benedict XII to arrive, which he does in uh, January. Before then, on Christmas, Sigismund finally arrives uh, with his entourage. And they begin trying to negotiate um, what they want to do. And what they want to do, by the way, the main idea I mentioned earlier among all these, most of these um, fathers here, is to get all of the uh, claimants to the papacy to abdicate freely. Um, there have been all sorts of things tried before. They think this is the best way to get it done. And so they're on the point of deciding to do this when in February of 1415, the uh, Members in the council um, are concerned, many of the non-Italian members are concerned that uh, if they vote just according to headcount, like according to number of bishops there, bishops and cardinals who can vote, maybe some abbots, um, they sort of just spontaneously do, the delegates there, decide to shift the way they vote, and they agree to vote by nation. Now, what do I mean by nation? Now, this is actually a term, don't think in modern terms about you know, birth or anything like this. Nation is a word that actually comes from universities. Um, Nazio were people that were from foreign areas. This is a term that goes back to um, Bologna, the first university created in the Middle Ages. Uh, it's where you had residences for non-Italian students. They called them Nazio, the nations. And so you have, um, you have these delegates decide that instead of voting by individual cardinals, they'll vote by national blocks, English, German, even though there's no Germany, that's the whole Roman as the empire, basically, Italian, and then French. Eventually, as you're gonna see, once they get, once the representatives from the Spanish kingdoms, and there's, there's not one Spain at this point either, there's multiple kingdoms, they'll form a fifth nation. And this is really significant. Uh, why is this significant? Uh, because, um, one reason they did this, especially the French um, and from the other people from the other nations, um, they were vastly outnumbered at the beginning of the council by the Italians. <laughs> and they were afraid basically John the 23rd would not ever abdicate if everything went his way. So this is a real turning point to a certain degree. It also begins to lead to, as you're gonna see, the breakdown between the council fathers and John the 23rd. Because the next thing, once they've decided how to vote, they want to do is, to, okay, we're gonna start with, okay, how the abdication process is gonna work. And so they asked, because um, um, representatives from uh, Benedict XII have come, excuse me, uh, from uh, Gregory, uh, my brain is dead. 
representatives from Gregory the Twelfth have come. Benedict the Thirteenth is very recalcitrant. He is the Avignon Pope, the Spanish Pope. The clergy are very loyal to him in Spain. He really thinks he's the real Pope, and they're really having a hard time getting him to agree. And he certainly doesn't want to come, not yet. And so what happens is they decide, okay, we're going to send representatives to him. We want. John the 23rd, you to send your own proctors or delegates to go abdicate in your name so that you can both abdicate at the same time. And this, all of a sudden, John the 23rd says, well, I don't, I don't know. Let me think about that for a minute. I don't know if I want to do that. Uh, and what he, one of the reasons he gives is that, well, Benedict XIII says he won't abdicate unless it's in person, unless the other person's there in person. So should I do this? And they're like, no, no, no. We think this is the best. The, the nations all agree this is the best thing. You need to do this. You need to show some good faith. To get him to do this. Uh, long story short, and by the way, here's a little image. If you, you can see this, the, this is Jan Hus preaching, famous preacher Jan Hus, preached by the way in Czech. Again, this is one of the things about the um, uh, the movement, the Bohemian Reform movement. It has these sort of vernacular um, aspects to it. By a late March uh, of twenty um, first. Um, John the 23rd has uh, become suspicious. He thinks they're going to depose him. So he begins to think about leaving. And in fact, they know this, uh, does not only the council fathers, but also Emperor Sigismund. They actually begin to close the gates of the city. They begin to actually hit, put post guards to keep him from leaving. Uh, and so, uh, as he says later, fearing for his safety, apparently, and thinking he's not free anymore to actually do as he pleases, um, John the 23rd causes a crisis by fleeing Constance. He leaves in the dead middle of night, the bunch of, uh, if he was entourage, um, he goes west to, um, to that town called Schaffhausen, uh, where he sends, um, you know, he has representatives going back and forth. They're talking about this. Well, I'm, I want to do this, but I want to do that. At this point, the council is basically, um, kind of freaking out. It's kind of, um, it's kind of um, 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 uh, an impasse, right? Because they've never, of course, I mean, you don't have a pope here, right? He was the one that convoked it. What can we do? Again, this throws everything into uh, into disarray. Uh, and so what they do is um, they immediately issue a few days later a decree um, saying that council's authority is not dependent on John the 23rd, that they have... Um, that they actually have a um, they actually have uh, authority on their own, and for the next several days they begin to debate a very very controversial piece of legislation. Let me show you this here if I can get this up. All right, all right. They begin to debate what will sometimes will come to be called either sacrosancta or hexancta which is a decree they issue on uh, March 30th, uh, 1415, in which in order to, and again, remember they're worried that this, what they're worried about, by the way, is some of his cardinals are going to Schaffhausen with John the 23rd. They think he's gonna leave and just let the council die. So on March 30th, they enact uh, this this text, to the call Hake Sancta, Hake Sancta, 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 whatever you wanna call it, in which they basically declare that the Council of Constance um, uh, in, in bold terms, is the head of the church, basically. I'll read part of it here. You can see it on the screen. 
in the name of the Holy Undivided Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. This Holy Synod of Constance, which is a general council for the eradication of the present schism, for bringing unity and reform to God's church and heaven members, legitimately assembled in the Holy Spirit, the praise of Almighty God, ordains, defines, decrees, and discerns, declares as follows. In order this union and reform of God's church may be obtained for more easily, securely, fruitfully, and freely. First, the Synod legitimately assembled in the Holy Spirit, constituting a general council representing the Catholic Church militant, has power immediately from Christ, and that everyone, whatsoever, whatever state or dignity, even papal, is bound to obey it in those matters which pertain to the faith and the eradication of the said schism. And it goes on, I won't read the rest of it, to, um, to basically say that John the 23rd can't go anywhere. He's under, you know, basically he's disobeyed the council. More to the point, they'll talk about this. I'm going to read the whole thing. They'll basically say that his prelates shouldn't leave. His cardinals shouldn't leave. If they leave, the whole thing will sort of fall apart. Now, one of the things about um, this, uh, this, this, um, this document that makes it controversial is it's so bald in terms of what it states. In fact, you can kind of see up here in this, this uh, translation of the decree. Uh, this is an abbreviated form of what they actually agreed on. Cardinal Zarabella, remember that name, he's one of these Italian canonist conciliarist types. But even he thinks it's uh, too extreme because he doesn't read out the whole thing. In fact, they insist, do the rest of the fathers, of doing this again and doing it uh, in toto because the second version is even more uh, explicit than the first one. Um, you have them um, basically uh, even in more bold terms in uh, um, that one, uh, a week later, uh, sixth, stating that um, um, uh, they add a couple of paragraphs, stating that. Unless I'll, I'll read it again here. And we'll go to that first paragraph. But they add two other paragraphs here. Um, first, it declares that legitimately assembled in the Holy Spirit, constituting a general council and representing the Catholic Church militant, it has power immediately from Christ. Etc. Etc. All those other things. Next, it declares that anyone of whatever condition, state, or dignity, even papal, who contumaciously refuses to obey the past or future mandates, statutes, ordinances, or precepts of the sacred council, or of any other legitimately, legitimately assembled council, regarding the aforesaid things or matters pertaining to them, shall be subjected to well-deserved penance, unless he repents and shall be duly punished, even by having recourse, if necessary, to other supports of the law. That was the part that Zarabella wouldn't read out. It's basically threatening punishment as well if they don't do this. I'm lingering on this, by the way, because this is an assertion of uh, something that would be today considered a heresy um, because it is totally opposed to the papal idea of authority. Uh, so this is a momentous um, uh, decree that they pull up. And they do it, by the way, again, because they're desperate. They need to keep these cardinals on side. They need to keep them from leaving which by the way, of course, it works. And in fact, uh, a few days later, they're beginning to pick up uh, steam a little bit. Um, they get around to condemning the works of John Wycliffe. And you're wondering why does that matter here? Again, one of the things they, that has happened because of the schism is that heresy has spread and they're wanting to take on the job of what essentially the Pope had been, right? Which is to keep heresy in, in line. So they condemn John Wycliffe. In the intervening month or so between this uh, and May 29th, they get in contact with John the 23rd. They eventually get him uh, to agree uh, to abdicate, which he does, and they finally uh, depose him on May 29th. So the first domino falls. 
uh, and I'll mention this, the last bit of the crisis when they seem to be getting their, their steam up here. They condemn, uh, they, they condemn the idea of communion in both kinds. And they didn't mention this. This became a, um, a point of contention in Bohemia as soon as Hus left for Constance. Um, because you began to have people in the radical camp in Bohemia saying that um, um, the laity have to have access both to the body and blood of Christ, or otherwise it's not legitimate, basically. They're making it a point of doctrine, which had not been before. Of course, in the Middle Ages, most people didn't receive both. And so um, I mention that because it's becoming, again, it's becoming almost a heretical move on their part. And they condemn that. They don't actually condemn, by the way, taking the lady having both kinds, just the insistence on that it's necessary uh, to have it. But it means they're picking up steam because they're being defined targets to exercise that authority they think they have. Again, to try to convince people that no, no, we've got this. We can we can end this schism. Uh, we can act like the Pope does, basically, and try to condemn heresy. <laughs> and in particular, they begin to. They've already by this point gotten representatives. Uh, he never actually comes to the council. They've gotten. Uh, that's not Gregory the 22nd. Damn, this, I should have checked these slides, but it's Gregory the 12th. Um, his representatives, um, he's the only one actually who actually agrees to abdicate willingly. And in July, July 4th, ironically enough, for you Americans out there listening to this, um, he agrees, his, his, um, his representatives do, uh, to abdicate on one condition. He wants to be able to formally reconvoke the council under his authority. Other words, he wants to get on the record that he is actually the, the real Pope. And so before he abdicates his, for his delegates, um, for him abdicate, they reconvoke the council uh, and say that everything after that is, a, is binding. I'll come back to that because that's important here. And then he abdicates. So things are finally being turned, right? They're beginning to reconcile people to this. They're also still condemning people. And the guy they condemn, of course, at this point is Jan Hus. And Jan Hus, um, uh, again, this sometimes gets uh, into well, it's a moment why this is important, but um, it's sometimes uh, Sig Emperor Sigismund is blamed for this because he gave him you know, safe conduct and he got arrested more or less with his tacit consent. Uh, but the people who were urging to put him on trial were the council fathers themselves, particularly the main conciliarists we mentioned earlier, uh, Dai, Gerson, Zarabella. Um, they were very much involved in this case. And um, they repeatedly were call, uh, called for him to recant, um, you know, uh, his alleged embrace of Wycliffe heresies. And um, he had a few defenders at the council, but for the most part, most of these council fathers thought he was a heretic. But he refused. Uh, the reason why is because he said he never actually had embraced those. And by the way, most historians think that's correct. If you read through his letters, he doesn't seem to actually, maybe with the exception of the papacy, he kind of denies the divine origin of papal jurisdiction. He doesn't deny papal authority on the whole, just the sort of, you know, very legal authority he had by the Middle Ages, they deny, he denies that. But other than that, there's really nothing unorthodox about Huss's actual work. As I said before, what really got him in trouble was his, well, his insistence on <laughs> defying every single authority they ever told him to stop, <laughs> every single one of them. And uh, I also think, by the way, probably because he must have known some of his followers uh, did embrace those beliefs. I, th I think perhaps he didn't want to disown them, perhaps. In any case, uh, rather than purge it himself, he is degraded from the priesthood, his teaching banned, and on July 6th, he is burnt to the stake, which he goes to, by the way, singing. 
uh, particularly actually we'll get to his his follower Jamal Prong as well he does that too so they assert their authority that way almost two weeks later um, the final preparations are made for Sigismund to go to a meeting place with the representatives of Benedict the 13th the Avignon claimant of the papacy at Nice in France to try to negotiate again his withdrawal from from that uh, from that uh, from his claim as well as to get the rest of the Spanish um, Spanish representatives of Spanish kingdoms on board. So he leaves. Later that September, and you can kind of see things slow down uh, until uh, mid-1416, um, one of uh, Hus's followers, a man named Jerome Prague, followed him uh, to Constance trying to trying to help him out. It's kind of nice of him. Unfortunately, he also, <laughs> he more than, more than, uh, more than uh, Hus was uh, more radical in his teaching, although he too didn't embrace a lot of what Wycliffe had to, had to say. Uh, they managed to pry at recantation of Wycliffeite doctrines out of him in September of 1415. However, um, some of his uh, opponents declared that his, uh, uh, in the uh, Curia, uh, declared that his uh, recantation was not sincere, and so eventually he demanded a uh, a meeting uh, of, uh, of the council fathers to clear himself. And instead of uh, clearing himself when he comes before them, he actually withdraws his recantation, proclaims that he always uh, thought Hus was innocent, and basically wants to sort of go to his death, which he does. Um, and like his friend, he's burnt the stake. He goes to the stake singing the creed. By the way, and if you're wondering why the creed. Both of them insisted they were they were innocent and that they were real Christians. They weren't heretics to the last death. That's why they sang the creed as they went to the flames. Um, one interesting thing about Drum of Prague, by the way, again, this is kind of uh, interesting, the assertion of um, the role of Gerson and all these other reformers who are academics in this. Drum of Prague was beloved by, humanist, uh, by humanists. Uh, they lamented his death much more than Hus because he was a better scholar, according to contemporaries. Uh, and yet again, this is kind of the successful assertion of their authority at that point, which again, gains it legitimacy. By late October 1416, you begin to have, um, especially the Spanish representatives, and there are multiple kingdoms sending uh, representatives uh, to uh, the council, you begin to have them for the better part of 10 months up until July 1417. Um, cardinals uh, um, and other representatives from Spain reconciling with uh, the council, abandoning um, uh, Pedro de Luna. And again, this is hard for them, by the way. Again, national loyalties were very powerful uh, in terms of this. I can't emphasize it enough. Not just, not just by the way, between princes and the church, but I mean, between clergy from different countries, there was a lot of animosity. One thing I've, I kind of glossed over in going through all this, if you don't know what the date is, you don't remember the significance of the date of 1415, that year, uh, the Hundred Years' War is still going on between the French and the, and the English. The Battle of Agincourt takes place during the council. So there's a lot of friction between the French and the English for obvious reasons, the clergy, I mean. But over time, they begin to get more and more of these cardinals coming in. Sigismund returns more or less successful at the beginning of the uh, 1417. And so by 14, uh, by July of that year, they're finally ready to, uh, they've gotten the, 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 um, the, uh, the adherence of most of the people who are uh, supporting um, 
Pedro de Luna, and they deposed him on uh, uh, July 26th of 1417, until you've finally gotten rid of basically all the sort of claimants to the uh, papal throne. Near the end of that year, however, you also have the council fathers begin to enact reform. Remember, I, I said reform was one of their big, uh, one of their big uh, goals for this um, this council. Um, from the beginning, most of their actual targets in this were things like papal taxation, um, papal appointments, um, ecclesiastical appointments within their diocese. Other words, they were trying to curtail the power of the papacy. A lot of the reformers thought of the problems of the medieval church as being a matter of too much centralization of the papacy. Uh, and so in October, they began uh, um, passing a series of reform measures, the most important of which is sometimes called frequens, from the name that's a Latin title it gets from one of the first sentences in it, which concerned the frequent summoning of general councils. Uh, it laid down that. Um, um, after the end of the Council of Constance, uh, in another five years, there should be a second council to meet, and then a third one seven years after the end of the second, and then after that, uh, a council every 10 years. So they tried to legislate permanent conciliar government uh, toward the end of this. And again, this was part of their idea, by the way, this would reform the church. Uh, it would, I guess, give more representation to more, more parts of the clergy and everything like this. And then finally, um, in November, they're finally ready, uh, November 8th, they go into a conclave, the first and I believe only uh, papal election ever held north of the Alps, ends in three days with the election of Odo Colonna, a Roman, um, as Martin V. Um, he is eventually um, installed, becomes, uh, becomes Martin V. Um, eventually, um, um, in April of 1418, the council decrees on the place the next council will meet, which will be Pavia in Italy, northern Italy. And then three days later, the council itself is finally dissolved and uh, thus ends the Council of Constance. You would think successfully, right? They've ended the schism, they've passed all this reform legislation, they beat down the heretics. Success? Maybe not. Did the council? fail? I'm going to ask this question. I'm not going to give an answer by it, by the way, for reasons I think I'll prepare it. Because, of course, it did actually succeed one big way. Did end the schism, right? Did that. So let's talk a little about why I might say it failed. First is it caused at least one other schism. <laughs> this goes back to Bohemia. Um, Hus's followers rejected his, uh, his condemnation wholeheartedly, and they embraced what's called Utraquism. And Utra comes from the Utraque, the word Utraque, just means both in Latin. It means a communion under both kinds. That became a sort of a rallying cry for his followers. And um, it turned those reformers into what we'll call Hussites, uh, his followers. Uh, and they had basically four, four points of their program. Um, the word of God should be preached freely by Christian priests in the way that Christ commanded. The Eucharist should be distributed under both kinds, we said before. All who committed mortal sins should be punished, including priests. And if you don't why they're demanding that, priests had a lot of exemptions from civil law in the Middle Ages. They had really a lot of, you know, immunity, uh, which a lot of people resented. Uh, and then finally, uh, clergy should renounce uh, ownership of worldly goods in order to live and work according 
according to the teaching of the apostles, they wanted the clergy to be more apostolic, less, you know, the you know, church was very wealthy in the Middle Ages. This concerned everyone, basically. Concerned, by the way, the fathers of Constance. They were, they talked about that as well. Uh, and so what happens is this, um, um, this movement basically means that um, the Emperor Sigismund, he'll become the emperor in a few years, uh, has to go to war. They, uh, they literally take up arms against the church, but also him. And it effectively becomes a religious war. Literally, Martin V um, um, urges, basically tells uh, Sigismund to call these crusades against the, uh, against the uh, Hussites which doesn't work out very well. Um, basically, they defeat him almost every time. The Hussites are pretty hardcore, apparently. Uh, Sigismund, by the way, is a very, uh, I think a very decent figure in many ways. He generally loved what was best for the Christian world, for Europe. Uh, not much of a military man, unfortunately. Uh, better part of 10 years, he gets beaten pretty much most every time. And so what happens is, we'll get to Basel in a second, there's a council in 1431, one of the ones supposed to be called after Constance. Um, Sigismund turns them over, negotiations with these Hussites to them. And um, this will result in a, in a series of compacts being signed at Basel, which will ratify most of the Hussites' articles of faith, giving a Catholic interpretation to them. But uh, the problem is um, not all the Hussites are, are, are united. In fact, there's going to be um, um, a... Um, a more radical group who will take those doctrines way past Catholic interpretations. Uh, we'll begin to call themselves Taborites. <clears throat> um, Taborites because there are all these hills outside of Prague, which a lot of these, these Hussites flee to after, um, after Constance. They named these hills after hills from the Bible. One of them is called Tabor. Uh, and these Taborites uh, come to fighting with the more moderate party. And by the way, these Taborites, they are proto-Protestant unlike the actual Hussites. They abandoned Latin for the liturgy. They allow priests to marry. Therefore, depriving the church of temporal goods. They're actually forgetting rid of the whole feudal order as it existed. So they're really radical. They reject that compromise in 1433, which led to war with the more, with the, what the Utraquists will call them, the more moderate Hussites, uh, who were destroyed, basically, uh, at, uh, at um, um, the Battle of Lepani in 1434. And that, by the way, is what makes possible the ultimate reconciliation of these people to the church. In 1436, a treaty ends the war. The Bohemians recognize uh, Sigmund as their king. And Utraquists um, basically come into communion with Rome. They remain in communion with Rome. However, they basically have their, their own separate church, basically. Separate administration, separate buildings. Um, in fact, they're technically part of the same church, but they're called different things. They're sometimes called, um, 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 they're called the Utraquists. Their opponents, the ones who are Catholic, they're called them subunists. Subunum in Latin means under one kind rather than both. So um, they almost have de facto separate churches, even though still in communion. One of the reasons they're still in communion, by the way, is that um, the uh, the authorities, the Pope, uh, basically didn't um, didn't bother when the See of Prague fell vacant to get them a new bishop. So in order to have their priest ordained, they had to have someone from outside come and do it. That's one of the reasons why they stayed together. Nonetheless, despite all of this, you'll have another breakaway from that Utraquist Church in 1457, 1467, um, which again um, 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 they'll become the 
they still exist today, the, the Bohemian Brethren, this is the Moravian Brethren as they're called today, uh, who followed down that more sort of proto-Protestant path. Ironically enough, uh, those Utraquists, who have that sort of separate church, which is still sort of in communion with Rome, will be reconciled only during the Protestant Reformation in the 1560s. Uh, in fact, according to some of my uh, sources that I read, um, they, um, the Utraquists, because of course you have Lutheranism beginning and going, getting into Bohemia, it's the Utraquists who actually resist uh, Lutheranism more effectively than, than their confreres. But they eventually, an, an archbishop is finally, uh, finally um, um, provided for Prague again, and they come back into, <laughs> into, into being one church basically in the 1560s. Crazy, huh? But what about conciliarism? Uh, you had that ex extraordinary expression of conciliar authority during Constance. Well, they made a go of it. Uh, the next council met, uh, Martin V met um, at, um, uh, convoked a council at P uh, Pavia in 1422, as uh, the fathers at council and uh, Constance had, existed, had insisted. However, uh, it was so poorly attended, so few people actually came, and so divisive people who did come there, they basically didn't accomplish anything but um, um, force the solution to name Basel as its next meeting place, because it would be revived in 1431. Now, what happened, though, by then, is that Martin V, who had been a, a, a conciliar, he had been for the conciliar um, ideal when he came to, to Constance, was replaced by Eugenius IV, and Eugenius IV had been at Constance, and he was one of the major opponents of that idea. <laughs> Never liked it very much. And so as soon as he came to Basel, when the uh, council was convoked, um, he immediately began to quarrel uh, with these uh, fathers at Basel, who were all animated by this conciliarist ideal, wanted to assert the council's authority. He tried several times to dissolve it, couldn't quite get enough um, people behind him. Eventually, he took a different tack, and he transferred it in 1438 to Ferrara and then to Florence. Now, the reason why he did this was uh, Basel, uh, Basel in the first place, the, um, the Western delegation was supposed to meet with the Byzantine emperor and his delegation to discuss a reunion between the Orthodox churches and Rome. And so in a very shrewd move, Eugenius transferred it to Ferrara and told and invited the Greeks to come to there, uh, Ferrara, and then Florence instead of Basel, where most of the conciliars remained, uh, and the Greeks uh, decided, yeah, we'll go and we'll go and uh, where the, the papal authority is at, and so they did. Uh, and there, they basically, and this is a story from another time because Florence is an amazing uh, story in of itself. Um, they signed they signed a decree of union. They actually did agree on a, a reunion in 1439 at Florence, which among other things agreed that the Pope was the pr primate of the entire church, it declared papal primacy in the uh, decree Latin Tercelli in 1439. So in other words, Eugenius used this as a sort of way to um, take steam away from Basel and people who were trying to assert conservative authority. In response, uh, the fathers at Basel deposed Eugenius. He condemned uh, 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 the council, the, the fathers at Basel, uh, in reply. The next year, the people who were left, by this time, by the way, most of the council fathers had actually gone over to Eugenius' side. Um, they elected an anti-pope, another anti-pope. Uh, Felix V 
Um, Amadeus of Savoy, by the way, he was a layman before he became Pope or anti-Pope, I should say. Um, still trying to wrestle uh, authority away from the Pope. Uh, eventually, um, the fathers at Basel give out, give up. Um, 1449, the V abdicates, submits to Nicholas V. The rest of the fathers uh, submit Nicholas V, the successor of Eugenius. And um, uh, Basel is finally dissolved uh, as a council. 13 years later, his successor, Pius II, condemns, appeals to future councils against papal authority. Uh, and so thus ends the uh, short and brief life, the short conciliarous moment where it looked like this might actually overtake the church um, as the way it governs itself. Finally, a few reflections on all this. First about Heik Santo, or Heik Santo, everyone pronounced the Latin. Um, of course, the question remains, of course, you had this council passed by, uh, you know, this council, which claimed, you know, passed this, you know, um, solemn sounding definition of conciliar authority that was superior to papal authority. So the question arises is, what does this do for the magisterium of the church, right? It's teaching authority. Did the Council of Constance um, effectively, uh, you know, uh, did it undermine um, the church as a teaching authority by doing that? Because of course, a few years later, uh, the Council of Florence says something very different. Now, one of the things to note about all this, right? A couple of things to note about all this is that for the most part, as I mentioned earlier, before before the high middle age, for really for the modern era, actually much later, most of the discussion of papal authority took place among canon lawyers, not theologians. And I mentioned all this because again, that's where they're getting a lot of their actual ideas from this from canon law. But more than this, there's a couple reasons why historians don't think um, Heik Santa is, put it in modern terms, a solemn definition of faith. Right, it's not it's not um, a, a statement of the extraordinary magisterium, and you have to go back to the Great Schism, go back to the beginning. If you remember how it began, it began because you had these cardinals saying that Urban the Sixth uh, election had been valid because of it, they were pressured by the mob. Um, and again, this is what caused confusion because you have people, you know, I think the Avignon Pope's the real one, the Pisan, the Roman. Almost all modern scholars think that that excuse of the original cardinals who started the um, who started the schism was completely false. There was, by the way, there's always some crowds uh, in. There's a lot of rowdiness in medieval cities, especially Rome. It's kind of a mud hole. Uh, long story short, there were there was some there was some mob action, if you like, um, um, before uh, Urban the Sixth um, election in 1378, but nothing out of the ordinary. That was just an excuse for these cardinals to get out from a, the authority of someone who was threatening their power and was kind of kind of unhinged so to be fair his temperament he was a he was kind of a wild guy urban the six he's a reformer type and they sometimes tend to be you know overheated uh when trying to deal with real world problems um the point is this is the reason why all those all those claimants the pisan claimant the avignon claimant are referred to anti as anti-popes today it always was the roman line the only legitimate one why do I mention that? Well, because um, if you'll recall, um, when Gregory the Twelfth, the Roman claimant, agreed to abdicate, he did it on the condition that he reconvoked the council. 
other words, it wasn't a true council until the Pope convokes it. Remember, he convokes it in July of 1415. Hike Sancta had been passed in um, March and April. Other words, it wasn't really an official council until he got there. That's one reason. On the other hand, however, um, even if uh, a pope uh, doesn't convoke something, he can still affirm it, right? Other question about this is, did Martin V confirm Hike Sancta as part of the actual teaching of the church? Um, and this is actually, um, um, this actually is something uh, toward the very end of the, um, toward the very end of the council, um, he got into a heated argument in Martin V with um, someone from the Polish delegation, where he basically said he, he did confirm everything that the council had done in a conciliar way. And, um, and again, no one's really sure what he meant by a conciliar way. And so in other words, not really sure what he affirmed or why he affirmed it. So in other words, it's not really clear if everything before Gregory XII got there was actually confirmed. In other words, we're not really sure. Put it this way, probably not a magisterial definition, a solemn definition, a definition of the extraordinary magisterium, right? Um, I'll give you this is Brian Tierney, who's a historian who mentions this. Um, very good medieval historian, Catholic historian. Uh, quote, it seems clear that a decree enacted by an assembly of ecclesiastical notables who probably did not constitute a validly convoked council at the time of the enactment and sub subsequently approved by a pope in an unpremeditated speech uttered in the heat of an angry debate can't be regarded as, cannot be regarded, I should say, as a solemn dogmatic definition of legitimate general council. Other words, it doesn't really meet the standard, modern standard. Does sound very, they meant to, they meant to sort of bind people, but that's the other thing about uh, Hake Sancta is that it's clearly aimed, of course, at a very practical purpose, keeping John XXIII's followers there so they can get rid of the schism. Second point, uh, the failure of conciliarism. You know, from a modern Catholic's perspective, it may seem, you know, kind of foreordained, but you should think about it for a second in terms of, maybe in some ways it's surprising that the, this idea of conciliarism didn't work. Um, it had, you know, councils, general councils, ecumenical councils are part of the church's history. It's part of them, part of today, of course. Um, they recur, of course, they happen from time to time. Uh, moreover, it had the support of the most brilliant minds of the age, not just Gerson, those people there. Uh, someone I didn't have time to mention was Nicholas of Cusa, uh, who was a um, um, brilliant thinker, theologian, was at the Council of Basel, wrote a whole treatise in support of conciliarism, and then left <laughs> Basel to go over to Eugenius IV. Um, it just didn't, for a lot of reasons, um, it didn't, uh, it never has worked out, by the way. Um, it never really got much traction among Protestants. During the Reformation in the 16th century, a few reformers, um, Thomas Cranmer from England, Martin Bucer, German reformer, tried to call for a pan-Protestant council, it never worked out. Um, even today, a few years ago, the Orthodox tried to have a, you know, an all-Orthodox synod, and some of the biggest churches, mainly Russia, didn't show up. Um, and so, for practical purposes, for practical purposes, um, to my way of thinking anyway, general ecumenical councils are a humongous undertaking. They are enormous. Even Constance was basically a pan-European council. Uh, Cardinal Falastra, who's one of the um, uh, chroniclers of the council, who's, you know, I consulted his, his chronicle of this 
for this uh, lecture. At the end of it, he writes about how, you know, Constance, he was proud of his work, but he talks about how never a council went on so long. You get the feeling he was exhausted by the end of it. Um, councils, I think, ecumenical councils are by definition extraordinary events. They really can't be, to me, the regular means by which the church universal governs itself. Perhaps more important than that was the authority of uh, the failure of the reform uh, reforms that uh, Constant tried to enact. People had high hopes for it. They thought councils would do that. They thought um, they thought if they could sort of get rid of the centralization, which they didn't do anyway of the papacy, it would do that. Um, the problems were a lot more widespread uh, than just the papacy. There were a lot of Again, like any sort of highly developed organization, um, there's a lot of bloat in the medieval church, which means you have, you know, within the structure of its offices, a lot of people who aren't, uh, who are not worthy to have them, have managed to, to get in um, as sort of uh, sinecures, uh, as parts of cliques and stuff like this. And um, the council fellows, I don't think, really either didn't understand this or weren't prepared to do anything about it. Partly because, of course, the same thing could be said of bishops in their diocese. And in fact, one of the problems they had when they went to Basel, because one of the things they did at Constance I didn't have time to mention, people like Gerson um, tried to um, insist on the participation of the lower clergy. Um, and what happens is when they got to Basel, they took that literally the lower clergy and began to criticize the bishops in their diocese, just as the bishops had criticized <laughs> the, the, the curia in Rome. And they didn't like that very much which is why I guess they were okay with going back to the papacy so it didn't threaten their authority at all. Uh, reform is always the hardest uh, when you, uh, everyone likes to reform somebody else, no one likes to reform himself, uh, basically. And this was one of the reasons it failed, um, which is depressing when you think about it, because I have to say there's, there's jockeying for status and power at every council, um, as there always is, but most of the reformers were really deeply serious people at Constance. Not just um, um, the council fathers, but the popes themselves, I think were more or less, they did what was best for the church. Even people like Hus and, and Drum of Prague who got condemned, they all were deadly serious. They really wanted what was best for the church. And they really, they, they really, they really failed <laughs> to try to actually do anything about it, unfortunately. And finally, one last, one last reflection, we're going longer than I thought uh, I was going to. Um, one of the things that makes Constance so unique is that it occurs in the context of a completely unprecedented situation, multiple popes, the need to invoke, um, you know, drastic solutions to get out of that. Um, and it kind of underscores that, you know, um, one of the things I mentioned about the papacy earlier in earlier days, why that wasn't, why the specifics of that doctrine really weren't defined until the modern age, till Vatican I, right, 19th century. And even then, there's still a lot of things haven't worked out. You know, one of the reasons why is because um, prior to the late Middle Ages, most of the times when popes asserted their authority, all they did to back it up was invoke tradition. They very, 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 really talked in terms of, you know, um, the basic nature of their office in a very abstract way. They just appealed to tradition. And what slowly begins to come clear at the end of the Middle Ages is that there's sometimes, a, uh, you know, tradition doesn't quite, doesn't necessarily have all the answers. And so you have to invoke an authority that can, you know, um, bring these uh, conflicts to an end to do that instead of just appealing to tradition. 
Um, but of course, only conflict brings that idea out that, oh, wait, this isn't about, you know, uh, we, there's, no, there's not some, enough there in the tradition. We have to do something different, um, which is why it's so contentious in the first place. Um, and one last thought, just going back to the whole schism itself, I'll leave you this thought. The idea that this whole thing started because a bunch of cardinals refused to recognize the legitimacy of a pope, who was a valid pope, even though he's a bad one. <laughs> um, and he was always the true pope. That line was always there. The truth was always there, no matter how much it was contested. And you have to remember, during throughout most of this period of Constance we're talking about, most people thought that John the Twenty-Third was the real pope, someone we call an anti-pope today. Um, I guess you can say be distressed by that in the sense that, oh God, people didn't even recognize that for decades on end. The flip side of it, though, is that even though it was contested, some people did realize that was um, the truth was there, even if it was contested. But it took all this, but that one that one act by those cardinals caused half a century of schism, heresy, and the degradation of the church's authority. Um, kind of don't want to end on such a dour note, but in the end, it, I think in some ways you could say it's a failed council in the sense that, of course, what we're, we're thinking about here, I haven't mentioned yet, we know it's coming, the Reformation, right? So perhaps in that sense, perhaps not. Maybe that's being unfair. In any case, uh, that, as they say, is that. And so um, uh, I am done with the